This is a Soulfire production. Keldog Extreme in the house. That's right, boo. What's up? Hi. I feel like I haven't seen you in like a few hours. I know. It's been really nice. I know. Could you just leave and like, Can you just leave? Just not tell me when you're going to come back? Well, I'm going to be gone tomorrow and Sunday all day. Aren't you excited? Yeah, I know. But then I'm just babysitting dogs all day. I told you that we could get a babysitter. I just don't feel good about that. I feel like we need our quality time. Aww. I feel like uh, Dutch's love language is quality time and physical touch. Yeah. What's R- Remy's? Remy's is um, is uh, acts of service. Mm-hmm. And oh, what's the other one that I'm thinking of? Damn it. I Gifts. lost it. He does like gifts. He does. Snacks mainly. <laughs> there we go. Oh, babe. We have such a cool episode today. We have Shira Myro on. She is a psychotherapist who helps people heal from dysfunctional relationships. So I got her to come on to help heal our situation. I'm, I prefer dysfunctional relationships. I know you do. They really keep me from having to be vulnerable with myself or others. Yeah. We, so I really all of us, including all of our listeners are fully aware of that. Yeah. And I basically <laughs> didn't listen to anything she had to say, but it was good though. From what I, from what I'm just kidding. Shut up. No, she was fantastic. She was You loved a, her. You were like geeking out with her. It was very we cute. Were flirting right in front of your face. Are you jealous? I support you. She's awesome. She was very great. I was she was mildly awesome. aroused. What? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she was fun. And she offers like such a, such a lighthearted and fun perspective, but yeah. She packs heat. Yeah, she does. It was cool because we talked a lot about communication in different ways. We got really deep down the shame rabbit hole, which I liked a lot. Um, And we talked about just sexuality in general and being raised in certain ways and how that really dictates what you do and believe as an adult. Um, We talked about my bisexuality and how that affects our relationship and non-monogamous relationships. I mean, we really covered a lot of topics and she is brilliant. Just so good. Yeah. You know where else is a good place to go deep? <gasps> Do tell, babe. P- better help. Better obviously. help. Okay. We love better help. I had my last therapy appointment yesterday, which was great. Yeah. And I am loving my therapist. We've talked about them a few times, but the woman I work with is just as spiritual as me, if not more. So that makes me feel really good. <laughs> it's not some boring ass talk therapy, which we all know nobody has time for anymore. Why do you like it? I like it because it's super accessible Yeah, and it's just there for me. It's like, Hey, it's not like, Oh, I need right, right now. I need a fucking haircut and I can't get a haircut because there's like a three month long waiting list. And that's kind of the same way that therapy is sometimes it's like, Oh, well, I guess you'll get in there. We can get in there and it'll cost you $600 an hour. (laughs) (laughs) I can get in there. Literally. I could be talking to her while we're reading this ad right now. Yeah. And that's no big deal. It's easy. Yeah. So it also is really cool that they give you so many, um, options as far as where those people specialize. And it's very transparent in that way. So it's like, here's our suggestions for you. And also here's a bunch of other people. If you just want to roll the dice and go find some people. So you yeah. get, it's an easy way to like, even having the text conversations before you have a therapy session, just so you can see where's this person at, how do they communicate? What are they like? 
super, super fun. And if you end up with someone who just doesn't work for you, maybe you have a couple conversations. You're like, yeah, this isn't vibing. You can, you just, can just, just find someone else. You can just ghost them like you're on a dating app. Yes. <laughs> ghost your, your uh, therapist. That sounds nice. Don't do that. Um, nice. Please don't do that. So go to betterhelp.com slash okay, babe for your discount. And if you guys decide to use the service, please let us know how it's going, what you love about it. Um, it's just something we really believe in. Yeah. And all those links are going to be links are going to be in the show notes for this show. So, um, you know, get your sexy ass over there and make it happen. All right. Here's Shira. Enjoy. Shira, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to talk to you. And really, there's just so many layers to what you cover and work with clients on, which I think is so important because as we know, love and relationships and sexuality is is very layered. And there's a lot of ways you can go with it. And I think for me, um, something that's been coming up a lot lately within our community is a lack of ability to process emotions individually and as a couple. And so much of that because we weren't taught all of these emotional skills as children. We didn't know that this even existed. And so all of a sudden we're adults in relationships and we have no idea how to operate. I would love for you to touch on how you work with patients and clients on emotional skills and developing those in a way that is supportive of them and their needs as well as within partnership. Well, that's that's a great question and a big question. Um, first of all, I'm I'm so happy to be here with you both, Kelly and Connor. Thank you. It's an honor to be on your show. Um, so let me see if I can kind of narrow this down a little bit. Um, I think we grow up sort of not having emotional um, literacy, so to speak. And and this idea is that I think for oftentimes for, for men, um, emotions are something that you kind of tamp down or you push away or you suppress. But we don't think of emotions as having intrinsic value, um, which is kind of shocking because they have so much information for us if we can relate to them in a way where we allow them to open up. And so I've... I've used mindfulness practice as a way for people to come into relationship with your emotions, because I think that when you, um, well, let's back up for a second. So um, the, the basic tenet of, let's say, secular mindfulness is the ability to observe what's happening in your field of awareness, your thoughts, your feelings, your sensations, but in a way that is compassionate and non-judgmental. And when you're observing your thoughts and feelings and sensations, A, you know, you realize they're impermanent, they pass, right? Like the clouds across the sky. But secondly, you create this all important space between whatever's coming up for you and how you respond to it. And I think where we get stuck with emotions is they come up, let's say a flash of anger or a flash of jealousy or a flash of resentment. And we immediately fixate. We, we mistake the intensity of that feeling for some kind of objective truth. And that's where we get really stuck as opposed to just stepping back and noticing and say, Hey, What's this about? And being able to respond versus emotionally react. And I think when you can do that, suddenly it, it opens up for you. So in other words, let's say maybe there's a, a flash of anger. Well, what else is underneath that anger? Oh, maybe there's some sadness. Maybe there's some hurt. Okay, what's that about? And with a kind of compassionate, gentle inquiry, start to explore. And then you realize, my goodness, maybe along with that sadness or hurt, there's a whole narrative you're telling yourself about you or the relationship or the story. And, and that's where you can start to step back and 
recognize, I think that we're driven very unconsciously by certain types of thinking that we're, we're not aware of. And so this kind of emotion work is so powerful. I kind of, I feel like it's like Jedi, like you become. (laughs) Connor said something to me yesterday that was really profound that I hadn't really thought of before. And I would be curious based on this, what your take is on it. And I said, I had this feeling and I, I don't want to butcher what you said, but it's something like you can't necessarily trust every single feeling and emotion that comes through. And so where I am in my journey is learning to trust myself and really listening to my body. And when something shows up for me, honoring that of, okay, where's this yeah. coming from? Kind of like what you were saying, what's beneath that? Where's this yeah. coming from? But it was really interesting because we have so many thoughts and feelings and emotions throughout a day And we put, we can put so much weight on it. And I think that's where you were really going with that, Connor, is you have a feeling and you put all this weight on it and you create an entire story around it. When sometimes it can really be more of a fleeting thought or feeling that is coming through. I'm not sure how, if that makes sense, but I'm just curious your take on that as we navigate all these emotions and sometimes don't know what to do with all of them. And instead of putting all our eggs into that one basket, how we can navigate that without being so attached. Oh gosh, it's, it's a really wonderful question. I mean, I think depending on who you are, I, we, we, we think between, I think, um, some estimates are as low as 50 to 70,000 thoughts a day. And the vast majority of them are repetitive, which is just crazy. So let's say you fall into a, a habitual loop of thinking negative thoughts about yourself, about your body, about your partner, what the brain, what do they say? Uh, neurons that, that uh, wire together, fire together. That's a popular sort of neuroscience uh, thing, but there's some validity to that. Think about it, that when a repeating thought, um, you're creating a neural pathway that becomes really well um, grooved in your brain. So I I think some attention, some kind of mindful awareness around that. So, So what is it that is constantly sort of showing up in my experience? That's one thought. The other thought is, um, can, can change. The brain is neuroplastic. Can we redirect our attention? Let's say there's a negative thought loop happening um, and you're aware of it. Can you, can you move it over? Like, can you investigate what that's about? And do we have any agency in, I want to say, moving our attention to, to other places? But I, I do think that that's an interesting question about how much weight we put in any given emotion or thought or narrative that co- sort of comes up to our attention. Um, which is, do we simply react to it and saying, ah, yes, this is what I'm feeling now. If you're feeling pain or an intense emotion, I would say it needs some, it, it needs some investigation. But I would say if you're noticing that it's just a habitual pattern of thinking, I would also say, is there another way I can relate to what's coming up? Yeah, I like that a lot. And I think there's, you know, I went through a, a phase in my life where I believed that my own feelings were irrational. Um, and I was taking feedback from what I would consider pretty narcissistic relationships in my life. So like I, that was, that was kind of throwing gasoline on the fire as far as that belief system. But I had a good friend of mine call me out and he was, he was really saying that your feelings don't really need to be rational to anybody else. Like object objectively, right? If you take a step outside yourself, what you're feeling experiencing may be or seem irrational, but in your subjective experience, it's very much rational, 
right? There's always, there's a reason where that uh, this, this thing is coming up in your subjective experience. Now to project that on everybody else's experience would be, would be a, 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 a fault of some sort, but to really understand that the feelings and emotions you have coming up are rational, pragmatic, justified for you and your experience. And then try and I, I thought I found that really powerful to draw the line between what was subjectively true and what was objectively true. Right. And how, how can it's, I, how can it's I, it's so hard. It is so hard. And it's, and how do you, how do you bridge that gap in communication? Right. How can I, and this is, I think where, where this lack of, or this really desire to really take ownership and take personal responsibility for what I'm feeling, track it down. And then what you were saying earlier, see what's underneath it. You know, like, where is this, what's this, this level of curiosity and investigation within yourself to go, okay, where's that coming from? And then how can I, I think when you start to mine down and figure out what that is, you can then bring it to the table communication wise with a little bit of understanding. Um, but what you were saying, Kelly, yesterday, it was more of a, a feeling in a challenging situation that was like business business oriented. Right. And I think there, it's very hard when you're a feeling person, maybe lean empathetic, right. More of an empath to try and understand that you need to, you know, when I started doing my early Vipassana meditation stuff with Tara Brock, you know, almost like thinking about your feelings and thoughts on a cloud, just kind of floating away (laughs) and you can kind of detach and observe them from a distance. I think it really is a challenging thing for people to do that are really feelsy to use that as a guide to make pragmatic decisions in life. And they can be, it can almost seem a little bit chaotic from the outside looking in objectively chaotic, but subjectively it can be completely justified. Mm -hmm. That's a really challenging balance or line to walk there. Yeah. I feel all the things. So, you know, (laughs) not exactly the most pragmatic person over here. Well, I think that's one of the most beautiful things about the feminine too, is that's, that's exciting. And it is, fun. And it has this consistent ebb and flow, like the ocean or a river. It's just, it's, there's, there's a beauty to it, but also there is a balance in understanding that you are not your feelings necessarily. Mm -hmm. And you get in the, and the space that you can create there is really powerful in my opinion. It's amazing. Um, gosh, I loved so many things that you said. I think that that idea of, well, first about irrational, right? That their emotions are irrational. That That's a judgment. That's a value judgment on that. As if they're, if we, we could just step back and say, well, it's information. Um, and I love Tara Brack's RAIN practice. I actually think that's, that's one of the best practices there are um, when stuff sort of comes up. It, you know, and like sometimes you need quick practices. Like you don't have time for a 20 minute sit if you have to make a business decision, but you can kind of maybe get off the phone and say, okay, I, I need a minute because I don't want to lead um, with emotionality. Sometimes that's, that's not great, um, especially in the in the business world. And so how do you re- emotionally regulate with your mindfulness practice so that you can kind of sit for a minute and say, okay, what's, what's, what's coming up here? H- how do I use the, my feeling function in a way where it supports maybe a sense of integrity or helps me align back to my values? Maybe, okay, this, the situation either with my partner or some situation feels somewhat out of balance. Use, use the emotion to kind of drop in and lead you to, you'll get to a place of clarity if you can sort of calm the mind down and settle with it and then say, okay, 
how do I get to that place? And I think once you can self-soothe, that's really the critical part. And I think the part that people have the hardest time with, because that's also a different muscle. I think it's a very uncultivated muscle, self-soothing. Um, but once that's the other super Jedi power, which is once you can learn to emotionally <laughs> regulate, um, it helps you so much in terms of your relationship and, and all your relationships, because you're not in that reactive kind of chaotic place in terms of how, how you respond to things. So I would love for you to talk more about self-soothing because, and I'm not sure what exactly you mean by that, but what just came up for me is something I learned from our somatic therapist that we worked with last year. And Heike told me, because I am such a outward external processor. Like I really like to talk things out and especially with the person I live with, because that's very convenient. <laughs> and, um, she told me that that's actually a, a, a negative thing for the relationship to constantly be processing with someone else. And so really for me, it's been learning how to process and self-soothe and work through my own emotions without needing someone else to either validate them or help me through and learning to trust myself to go through that experience. Is that kind of what you're talking about? I think that's beautiful. And I think it's part of it. I actually think they're parallel processes. Mm. So you need that internal dialogue with yourself of self-soothing. And what I mean by that is figuring out how to, how to calm down, how to take care of yourself. Um, Self-mindful self-compassion is a beautiful practice. Uh, Dr. Kristen Neff, I had resistance to it for so many years and then finally I just broke down. I was like, I I gotta understand this. But (laughs) I I also think self-compassion is just so, sometimes it's really hard, but I, I heard this beautiful podcast with her where she was saying, we innately know how to feel compassionate and it's more a question of directionality. So can you feel, can you direct the compassion? Let's say, take the self out. Cause I think for many people, they think, oh, it's really indulgent, self-soothing, self-indulgent, narcissistic, navel gazing. When really, you know, we're, we're always suffering. Well, not always, but we often suffer and we don't know how to get to that place where we can bring some loving kindness, um, maybe some softness, some tenderness to what we're feeling. Um, but sometimes self-soothing is going out and getting some fresh air or taking a run or just expending the energy. I, I think there's a yin and yang to it. Um, uh, Dr. Neff talks about that as well. Sometimes it's the ability to say, okay, I can meditate here. I can, it actually takes 20 minutes to downregulate from, from your, when your um, sympathetic nervous system is aroused and you're in fight flight. Um, it, like you can't cool down in five minutes. So maybe that does mean going for a, a long walk so that you can kind of come back to center and then you can engage in a more generative conversation with your partner afterwards. So I want to say it's, it's twofold learning to be able to sometimes self-contain and not always feel like, Oh my gosh, I need validation. I need you to, you know, sit with me and da, 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 which sometimes we do. Um, but so that you can kind of come back to, I want to say, come back to the table and, and actually problem solve and move from not just, okay, we got into that fight and that was horrible and I'm so sorry. And you know, I love you, which I actually don't think is the best way to solve anything, but to actually do the repair work. And then you start to trust, Hey, we can get to this place. I can trust myself. I've got confidence in myself, but I also have confidence in our process together where we can move from harmony, disharmony and repair and get to the next place. So we don't keep repeating the same fights over and over again. Can down regulation look like deep cleaning a couch? 
Does that is that part of your like plan? Because uh, according to Connor, that is that's the move, huh, babe? I mean, yeah. Yesterday, <laughs> Kelly was super stressed, and we had just gotten our little shampoo cleaner thing for the couch because the dogs have made it a complete mess. And my thought was, and this is what I do. This is my self soothing. It's like, well, I just need to do a thing that I can complete and feel good about while I'm thinking about this. Cause if I just sit and stew in it, it's just kind of just going to keep running myself in mental circles. So let's clean the fucking couch. So we cleaned the couch for like two hours and it looks better now. And we got complete with something and then we got high and then we solved a lot of problems. We did. It we was solved great. the world's problems after that. It was, we got, I mean, it was like one of those things too, where it's like, I'm going to get uncomfortably high now. Yeah. Like I'm not getting like high watch TV. I'm not getting high where I can't really do much else besides just like think about things in a completely obscure way. Which was structured. Yeah, but it totally downregulated my system. And I, I I was so I will say this, I was so grateful for him in this in that moment because he knew exactly what I needed. I always clean when I feel like I'm losing control and chaotic. And that's how I kind of just like veer off and take my thoughts off this spiraling thing in my head where it's just repetitive over and over, which is what was happening yesterday. And I was just sobbing and losing it. And he's like, Let's mm. do this thing. And then I was able to think so much clearer. It was actually very amazing. Good job. Yeah, I think I, I got a lot of that from. I started using that as a as a um, tool through the flow state research that Jamie Wheel and um, Stephen Kotler have talked about. And it was well, I used to do this when I was. I would try to get into. I would try to hack a flow state. Right. I guess it was common language back in the early t- 2010s. But um, I would like ride my bike on a trail without a helmet. Right. So I didn't have any like safety blanket. So it, 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 when you, when you have an inherent, like a, I think they call it a risk, like 10% outside of your comfort zone is kind of the data they use. You, you don't have enough, um, neurological power to not focus, to focus on a bunch of things. Mm. Right. So cause your brain is subconsciously focused on like not dying. Right. This is why people love skydiving, base jumping, things like that. So you can really only focus on one thing and that will get you into a, a, a um, I think it's a, a beta. No, it's an alpha wave state. And then you can really focus and like ideas will come to you. Same thing when you're showering, like your body's doing a bunch of other things and like you, an idea will come to your head. Yeah. So now it's like, I shoot my bow or I mow the lawn. It's like, what can I do? (laughs) It's like, I can complete this in the next 20 to 30 minutes. And it requires a lot of cognitive um, focus that's unconscious. And then I can, I can leave whatever processing I have left over to really only focus on one thing. So otherwise I'll just throw myself into like a, a essentially like a cognitive fit. Mm-hmm. I'll just be over here, like thinking of more problems that I need to solve. And it becomes a, it becomes a shit show in my brain. That's me personally though. I don't I don't know if that works for everybody, but it makes sense to me. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. If, if you know where to redirect the energy, I want to say it's, it's just, it's so subjective and whatever works, works for you. I, I'm also an anxiety cleaner. So I, I yes. <laughs> sometimes after I read the, like the headlines of the news, I'm I like, know. Oh my God. <laughs> I feel like I'm now in the oven. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, I mean, cause I'm trying to regain some, someone's of control, yes, exactly. um, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's also just so amazing to, to there's parts of our brain we don't fully understand, you know, as, as much as we try to sort of wrap our minds around, um, even the whole sort of, uh, with functional medicine, right. We, you know, there's, there's places where I think our, our minds can go to, but understanding the complexity of it, the, the systems are, are so, um, 
my goodness, that like they're so granular, they're so interconnected. It's 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 kind of amazing. And so we like we have this all this high level ability to to um, uh, to think and create and design and and also there's parts of our brains that are still pretty primitive, mm-hmm. and and that's kind of wild that we're we're both of these things all at the same time. What's up, Kelly? We got a, We got an announcement to make. Yeah. So we're Actually, about to, to, to talk to you about our sponsors and Connor had to make sure he put his blue blocks on so that you could feel them through the audio that his eyeballs were being taken care of. Listen, I stare at screens all day, all day. And sometimes at night too, whenever Kelly's in bed. Hey. Is that when you're watching porn? I don't watch porn, but I do. <laughs> that's where I do. Uh, that's where I do. You know, I do a lot of my, a lot of my work at night. I can finally get some goddamn peace. But when I'm doing that, at night especially, I'm rocking my blue blocks, baby. You have to. Why wouldn't I? I know. They're there and they're stylish. And you they're, look I, sexy I just, as fuck. I know. I'd totally do I you. know. When, I, when I'm in my Zoom sex parties, people are always giving me compliments. Yes. Before we all get naked and weird. I like that, babe. <laughs> okay, so we are obsessed with blue blocks. They go through a three-tiered process for quality control because who wants to spend money on stuff that doesn't actually do what it says it's going to? Yeah. I really hate when that They're happens. They're also just not built in some big factory in China. China? No, they're built in <laughs> Australia. With very nice people who actually really care about raising awareness for restoring vision. They have a nonprofit in California. So for every pair sold, they donate a pair of glasses. They believe everyone has the right to glasses. And we love aligning with companies that really have a soul centered, great mission and foundation. Yep. Yep. So where can people get these amazing glasses and a sleep mask? Oh, if you're into sleep, sleep mask. Masks. Everything is just like, if you can get your sleep dialed in, so many good things are going to happen. We already you. have a master bedroom in a dungeon and you still have a sleep mask. Like you're the most what bougie, you high maintenance little bitch. I, I, you know what? You should wake up every day feeling hungry, horny, and happy. And getting quality sleep helps me do that. I like it. Okay. So if you guys go to blueblocks.com, that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Use the code BABE for 15% off and free Shipping, Protect shipping across the whole world, by the way. Yo eyes. And our other amazing sponsor today is clear stem. Do you need to go run and get the face wash so you can wash your face while we do this ad? I actually have it. I, I have it on my face right now. You just can't tell. That's right. Cause it's clear. It's so, so. clear. <laughs> okay. So clear stem skincare is revolutionary skincare that is anti-aging and anti-acne. But here is where it really sticks out for me. For most of you who know, I have dealt with chronic illness for about 15 years of my life. Finding non-toxic products to clean my face, help with acne was really impossible. Um, You could find stuff that didn't have anything in it, but then it didn't do anything. So it was very pointless. Again, I hate spending money on things that don't work. This brand has zero hormones disruptors or toxins. So it's very clean, but it's also extremely effective. We've been using it for a couple months I love the way it gets all the makeup and just gross shit off of my I face. Know. Those nights I spend in drag, I really <laughs> use I, I rely on clear stand to get that eyeliner off. Oh man. I'm sure Danielle and Kaylee, who are the founders, would be so happy to hear that. Yeah, Danielle girl. Danielle actually is the owner of the San Diego Acne Clinic. So these two women who founded this really understand acne and what people need. Their serum is top of the line, and that was where they started, and then they created the entire line. But 
It helps reverse acne scars, regulate hormonal oil production, reduces redness and inflammation, increases collagen and elasticity. I don't know. I feel like it can solve the world's problems. Cell Renew does everything. Also, what I've noticed is that the bottles that these things come in are actually pretty big. They're big and they're so nice. And they last for a long time. Yeah, it really does last a long time. I'm so impressed with this entire line. So we would love for you to try out Clear Stem Skincare. And on top of that, they have a new Ditch Your Acne course. So if you need help figuring out what you're putting in your body, what you're putting on your skin, where the acne is coming from, they get to the root cause of all of this. This is an incredible course. So if you go to clearstemskincare.com, that's clear S T E M skincare, use the code babe at checkout. You'll get $10 off the products and you'll get 15% off of the ditch your acne course. And they've already helped thousands of people with the products and the course. We love them. Try them out. Do it. Do it. All right. Let's All right. get back to, back the, show. to the show. When we talk about sort of spiraling and getting into a repetitive state within our minds, that really brings me to the shame piece that I wanted to talk to you about. And shame in a lot of different aspects of life will send many of us into these constant thoughts of I'm gross, I'm not good enough, this is bad, I'm doing something wrong, I'm disappointing someone. And that has been really prevalent for me within sexuality over the last year and even spirituality recently as I've been more open about my process. And Connor comes from a very religious background and shame within the church and religion really had an effect on him as well. And I would love to hear your thoughts on how to mitigate the shame and not have that be the controlling or dictating force in our lives. Oh, wow. That's, that's, it's a big, it's a big complex question. I want to say, you know, that, um, everybody's shame narrative has different origins or slightly different origins, depending on your, your family system, or maybe the religious tradition that you've, um, that, you know, that you've been uh, indoctrinated in or maybe moved away from. But I, I will say this, you know, shame, shame for us. Often the, the narratives um, come from a very young place. So in other words, we've internalized them, you know, as, as a child or maybe an adolescent, um, even in terms of our sexual identity or our gender identity, even our arousal templates, they form when we're, we're very, very young. And I think what's key to, to remember is that even as, let's say even as an adolescent, you know, we're, we're just kind of graduating a, a child, let's say, let's say the shame, the shame piece starts early, uh, doesn't have capacity for complex thought. Uh, kind of back to this idea of of graduating into a, a more uh, a more expanded ability to tolerate complexity, but not just complexity, but ambivalence, ambiguity, uh, anxiety, which comes right as a paradox as we get older and mature into adulthood. So I think as we hit puberty, um, there's a big shift in um, child's ability to to hold more complexity and more abstract thought. But teens are still pretty binary thinkers. We're still, which is so interesting because now when we think about sexuality and gender identity, it's on a very fluid spectrum. And this is a radical change for us. I, I, th I still think we're kind of absorbing and taking this in and figuring out how do we have these conversations um, because it's not binary anymore. And so, right, the, the more simplistic part of us wants to be like, well, it's A or it's B. Well, <laughs> what if it's like 
A and B and a little bit of C, it's really <laughs> difficult. <laughs> Maybe a little D on the side. <laughs> I love a little D on the side. <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll say this. Um, it's important to know that um, the, the mark of adult consciousness is the capacity to tolerate paradox, ambiguity, and relative to the shame, I want to say that you have now the ability to hold it, right? You have the the internal resources to say, okay, what's the shame narrative about? How can I bring some loving uh, kindness to to this narrative? And and is it true anymore? Is it true? Like, is, is this my shame? Is this something that, or, or is this something that I internalized as shame, but actually it's nothing to truly be shameful about now? You know, I'm interesting yeah. about uh, interested in this highly. It's something I just don't I don't understand, but I have a lot of compassion for it. And you've brought it up subtly a few times. This idea of um, non-binary genders or gender fluidity, and the difference between biological sex and and gender is this something that you that you explore a lot with with the people that you work with, and where is that? It seems like it almost seems like a new phenomenon in a way. I know it's not right. I mean, I know it's not necessarily something that's been um, it's not something that's been out there as much. And of course, now people can be louder (laughs) with their their thoughts and opinions, thanks to the social media that we've created. But but I'm curious what your what if you could help us understand a little bit more, like how gender fluidity works and where that, where that comes from in a, in a person, because I mean, my, I've, I've gotten more and more into politics and that becomes a big left versus right kind of trigger topic that people use to leverage their own belief systems. But I, I really am in just internally very curious about gender fluidity and, and a non-binary approach. It's, it's so interesting, you know, uh, I'll, Full disclosure, it's it's not my my specialty, although I, I work with couples, I work with gay couples, lesbian couples, uh, bisexual cu- couples, poly couples, and, and people looking to open their relationships. And so, uh, you know, it's, I think it's fascinating because we're, we're all in this kind of cultural sea change, uh, even around, let's say, open relationships where it's, it's kind of risen to the surface thanks to people like Esther Peril and, uh, or, or Tammy Nelson, they're, they're bringing these conversations that people are, are curious about. And I, I will say this, you know, there, there, there is, does seem to be, uh, I, I, I want to say it's uh, like with boomers, uh, they have a different mindset than Xers, which I am then with millennials, which you guys are. And then, and Gen Z's there's, there's more openness. Like in, in my younger couples, there's more curiosity, there's more fluidity, there's more flexibility and kind of a sense of, okay, well, how, how do we navigate this? You know what? I'm, I'm interested in an open relationship or I'm questioning my sexuality five years into this relationship. You know, how, how can we make space for this? And I, I think with, um, with couples and sort of progressively older generations, it, it's much harder. Think about those habitual thought patterns and how we've identified ourselves that, that make it that much harder. But I, I, I want to say we're all grappling. Maybe some people are a lot more curious about, um, what that looks like and having those conversations. So I want to say it has to do more with your level of engagement in the question and your, your willingness to be in conversation around it, because it's not, sometimes it really is just conversation. 
as opposed to this is a hard and fast truth about my experience or this is a hard and fast truth. I want to say that, um, but it's scary for, for a lot of people. It's, it's scary. They don't know, they don't know what it means. And they, they think that, um, it could potentially be a very, um, what's the word like unraveling. Um, absolutely. You know, what's interesting is for us, when I came out publicly and told everyone I was bisexual and that we were in what everyone I guess would call a monogamous relationship. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it was so nice for us to just be honest. Like this is the thing that we do and yay. Um, but what we got was a lot of responses from women who felt permission to then share with their partner that they were also, whether bi-curious or bisexual, were interested in a sexual experience with a woman. And some of them had great responses from their partners. And they were like, you know, the typical man response that you would expect, like, hell yeah, like, let's get a girl in here. Come on, baby. Others men were so triggered and felt so bad about this. And some of these relationships had gone on for years and either the women had never known about themselves or had, you know, repressed it or hadn't shared it. And they're like, how dare you come out five years into our relationship and tell me that you have interest in hooking up with a woman. And so that creates so much shame. Like luckily when I told Connor, I have feelings for women. He had already wanted to be in this type of relationship. And that was something that was important to him. So for me, it was really easy. He was like, okay, when do we start? (laughs) (laughs) And I realized that that's not everyone's experience. My shame came more from feeling like I was disappointing my parents and that I wasn't, you know, good enough. And then what I was doing was gross to, to be in that situation where maybe someone's coming from religion or growing up in their home where that's not okay. And then all of a sudden their partner is telling them, how dare you, this isn't okay. I mean, how do you navigate that? What do you do with that in staying genuine to yourself and your desires and not falling into someone else's shame story? That's really not yours. Oh gosh. Um, that's, it's, it's, that's a complicated question. And uh, I want to say it's going to look different, you know, for, for, for each couple. Um, the truth is our, our sexuality, uh, keeps evolving. Um, and for some people, maybe their, their gender does too. Uh, we don't know, you know, I, I think those, these sort of hard and fast, you know, dogmatic ideas. I mean, when you think about the trajectory of, of science, neuroscience, medicine, I'm, there's so much change. Yesterday's truth isn't today's truth. And so this is an interesting question about like, what, what do we hold on to as in terms of our core identities? I always come back to, to values um, and staying aligned with your values versus, you know, some of these external, um, external ways that we identify. So, you know, I, I think um, back to, back to the shame piece, um, and especially with couples that, that I work with that come and say, okay, we, we've hit, we've hit a wall or we, we want to open up the relationship or I'm questioning. I think sometimes it's, um, you know, all those self-help things online. It's so hard to talk to your partner to like, sit down, make sure you're not hangry. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> it's a good time of the day where it's like, Okay, well, <laughs> I, I, I think some of these conversations do need to be facilitated. Um, and sometimes, you know, maybe there is that initial shock. I mean, I've, I've had couples, you know, with um, 
um, some some very extreme uh, either sexual fantasies or, or fetishes or um, uh, you know secret lives, um, potentially very very destructive and disruptive to the relationship. But what I found in some, not all, because some really aren't willing to sort of dive into those questions in a, in a deep way. But in some of these cases, the the erotic life of what it symbolizes, the meaning that we make out of it, the exploration has yielded some of the deepest, most beautiful questions about identity and giving each other permission to say, hey, your identity can evolve, not just spiritually, which is I think a lot of where a lot of people like to go, but sexually too. There's there's a whole world of um there's a whole world of meaning making and identity making in some of these questions. And it's blown me away. I, I found that um, um, some of the conversations have been so deep and illuminating and revealing. And so this, this kind of narrow constricted, okay, this is what we do and how we've been doing it. And this is who you are. And this is what you like to say, okay, whoa, let's, this, this is opening up, but I think it's very frightening for a lot of people. And so it's, it's going to be a delicate, you know, a delicate, it, I want to say push and pull. Like if your partner's super shut down, that's going to be hard. And you might come up to the edge of the relationship. You might realize, okay, there's a threshold here that we cannot cross. Is that a deal breaker? And in some couples, it absolutely is. And in other couples, it kind of breaks the relationship open and then they have to create kind of a new, more expansive container for that relationship. And negotiating families is a whole other question because some people prefer to keep it private. This is our private life. It's not up for people weighing in. Um, but I think what other you guys people have, have podcasts and <laughs> tell every story ever. <laughs> yes, exactly. So there's that. <laughs> Yeah. And if you're going to go public, people are going to weigh in and you're, you're going to expose yourself to their judgment. And you, you I, I think there's some, I think, thick, thickening of the skin <laughs> that's going to have to, you know, go with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting when you're, when you're, when you publicly put yourself out there because it does, it almost seems like it, you know, I come from, I come from a, a, a communities where I got into a lot of this stuff where it was very outspoken as far as, um, non-monogamous relationships and, and various other things. But that was a really big pillar of the community that was in. And there's a lot of attention on that. And it almost felt like once you were one of the, the things about going public about anything or your belief systems or what you want to do, that's especially if it's, if it's counter to the, to the norms, um, is that it does, you got to accept that sometimes you're going to sit in this place of, I don't want to change because now people have identified me as this. Now I'm in this camp which is one of the things that I did early on was like, I don't want to be in anybody's fucking camp. I don't want to be in your polyamorous. I don't want to be in your polypod. I don't want to be in your monogamy camp. I don't I, like, I'm just, I'm out here doing my thing and it's going to probably change all the time. And that was my, that was my stance, which gave me, gave me so much permission to change my mind. And I think that's where people get, I, I, I've seen this with people going from like a monogamous relationship structure to like full on polyamory. And this is like, and they're just as they're making the same mistakes they made with monogamy in a, just a, just with open relationships. Now it's like, this is the only way to do it. This is the best way to do it. This is what we're doing now. And if you're not doing this, then you're just not evolved. And I'm like, well, you're first off, you're a dick. So shut up. And second off, like you're doing the exact same thing. You've just taken all of your confirmation bias and all of your arrogance and all of your ego and just put it into a different thing. You just, you're, you're driving a Dodge instead of a Chevy now. Like it's really not any different, but the way that you're then projecting that onto the world is like, oh, you're now, now you've made your, you actually weakened your position substantially 
by now assuming that you're doing your, your self-righteousness is leading the way. It's not your feelings, not your emotions. It's, it's, it's you now needing to project this onto everyone else as if it's the most evolved way to be. And if you don't want to participate in that, then you just, you just don't get it and you're just not there yet. And I, th- I see that a lot in open relationship communities, which turns people off because no one wants to be told that they're wrong. Right. And I think that's if, if, if you will, if you love being monogamous and missionary is the only position you use for your whole life and you're down with that and that's what you and your partner into like more power to you. In my opinion, that's kind of kinky cause that's really weird. <laughs> 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 but I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, it's so, it's so individual and, and it's, it's, it's nice to give yourself a little bit of wiggle room as far as what you believe, in my opinion. Gosh, you know, it's, it's, it's true. I, I think anytime that, you know, you, you're, you're stepping into whether it's you're, you're coming out sexually, or maybe you're, you're, you're now identified as, as open and non-monogamous, or I want to say th- this is true. You know, when, when you, people first come to to therapy and, you know, they learn boundaries and then they're practicing their boundaries everywhere. Like I am so uncomfortable with that. That is not okay <laughs> with me. Right. Yeah. You know, I will not tolerate that guy, <laughs> you know, and, and they're out there flexing that muscle. Just, you know, they're, they're, they're stepping into that new, that role or that no, new identification, you know, and I think sometimes that, that, that wears off, but, but you're right that there can be a kind of self-righteousness, um, that uh, is is absolutely off putting, and at the end of the day, um, I want to say like, is it anybody's business? Like, it's it's really a personal journey about you feeling authentic and aligned with who you are, and and looking for that community that's going to support support that, you know? Yeah. Um, as opposed to judging, oh, those people are so involved or they're so unconscious or they're so, you know. Yeah, I think <laughs> when, so you, when, you get into these, when you get into these spiritual communities, it's like people wearing flowy gowns and just pretending like they're not judging everybody, but they're really judging everybody. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I've taken it as my as my uh, as my responsibility to call them out on their on their bullshit. I'm curious, have you ever have you ever watched the show uh, Big Mouth? Oh, oh, a couple episodes. That's oh uh, right. an animated show, right? Yes. It's so yeah. funny and it's so accurate. Mm-hmm. It, it, and they did so much there with sex positivity, but there's one character. He's just, he's hilarious. And he ends up being, I think he calls himself a bi-curious non-binary magician. <laughs> <laughs> he also he also fucks his pillows, but it's like it's a it's it's hysterical. And I remember thinking like, <laughs> I think everybody needs that like, oh my god, what if I turned everything that I believed up on my on its head when you were twelve years old or thirteen or when you're like coming into your sexuality? And I've always thought it'd be interesting coming from a place where you know a small like town in the Bible Belt where it kind of goes like this: you fall out of a person and now you're alive. And you're just assumed to be Republican and straight and Christian until proven otherwise. Mm. It's like you're you're guilty until proven innocent, basically. And I wish there was a time in education, and I've been thinking about education a lot, especially when it comes to economics and history and, and especially biology and sex ed, where it's like, I wish you could just come in and be like, here's all the religions. Which one fits you the best? And here's all the things mm. you can be sexually. And which one? I don't know. Figure it out. Like, there's no shame in doing something. You may try something once and be like, oh, that's not me. It's not for me, but there doesn't need to be a lot of shame attached to that. And I feel like the constriction of shame is, is one thing that we could easily suss out with education because we all have to go through that. We all have some sort of form of sex ed and it's, it, even though it's highly contested, like it's, it seems to be evolving, but what if we had that like religious and, and sexual education that was actually open-minded? Like I always think about how much that would change the shape of the way we see each other. 
Oh my gosh, abs- absolutely. You know, and um, and the split between spirituality and sexuality. I mean, that, that's been a theme throughout so many Judeo-Christian um, and Islam, right? That, that, that split, which I think is so unfortunate. And, and think about how, how old and patriarchal and misogynistic and unevolved that split is, but it's really manifested itself, manifested itself I mean, ongoing. Um, it, and I, I feel like that's one of the worst splits uh, because, you know, whether it, it iterates as like the Madonna whore complex or some other kind of split. It's, it's so unfortunate because it, it disconnects us from our intrinsic wholeness that this it talk about the shame narrative, right? That that's not part of who you are. That's not a natural, healthy, essential part of our human identity, just as much as our, our, our spiritual identity is. And so, right. We have these sort of mind body disconnects. It's, it's unfortunate. I mean, I wish there were certainly sex ed, um, I love Emily Nagoski. I'm sure you're familiar with her work. Um, no, I don't, do you, oh, she's, oh. she's fantastic. She wrote a book called come as you are. Oh yes. A couple yes. years ago. Yeah. I have that. Um, I haven't read it yet. Oh, it's wonderful. It's an amazing book, but I, I feel like there's, there's gotta be a, a, a reimagined approach to sex ed. That's just much more integrated. And also that helps you emotionally navigate what's coming up because you can't, you know, pornography too. How do you handle that? <laughs> right now, I think porn is the primary sex ed for yeah. uh, most American children. I don't understand. I still don't understand how the abstinence only crowd has as much pull as they do when it comes to sex education. Like who are these people? Who are these Karens out here that are just like fucking, <laughs> I don't want my kid to know how, well, I, I don't understand. It's like, and most parents aren't equipped with the information to do a, do an adequate job. So you kind of rely on the education system. And if, you know, they're using analogies like gum on the bottom of shoes or, uh, or duct tape, that whole, I don't know if you're familiar with that analogy, but it's like every time. No, no, tell me. I think they use duct tape as a good one. It's like basically they, they use a woman for this more often than a man, but it's like every time I think you take a piece of duct tape and stick it on something and then you pull it off and you stick it on another thing and pull it off. Eventually, it's going to not be able to stick. You're not going to be able to have a healthy relationship if you've, if you've oh. stuck yourself to enough things <laughs> and God, they usually oh use, and then God. they usually use that analogy with, um, or that metaphor with, uh, with women particularly, which I feel like is pretty damning in itself, but it's like this belief of like, yeah. Oh, everybody, everybody you fuck, you're carrying a little bit of their, of their, of their trash along until you are just not going to be able to, you're not going to be worthy of a relationship after you have sex with more than six people or something. It's such a weird way of going about it. And it, we, they use a similar analogy as like gum on the bottom of a shoe. And I'm like, it, when I was in junior high, I remember this guy came and talked about that. Mm. And I've, I'd look back on that and I'm thinking, does anybody in here need to be compared to gum on the bottom of someone's shoe? <laughs> yeah. Like how it, demeaning. Does, it, yeah. How, where does that put Absolutely. me on the, on the, in the ranking of, of value in the world? It was so weird. Yeah. So weird. I, I still don't understand how those people have so much pull and there's so many better ways we could go about doing it that just don't get any airtime. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there, there needs to be a revolution. There are people doing amazing work. Um, Peggy Ornstein, um, she's has some, she just wrote this incredible book called, well, she did one on girls and sex, but just did another one on boys and sex and talking about bro culture and hookup culture and how, how um, I have a teenage son and a tween oh. son. So I'm right in it. Best of luck to you. <laughs> 
<laughs> but but realizing right the sex ed well right now there's no education <laughs> i think yeah. online yeah i don't know what's happening there but during the quarantine but it's hard it's it's hard to have these conversations um there's another amazing dr gail dines uh, is doing some amazing work on on how to talk to kids about exposure to porn i think it's the average the average uh exposure to pornography for the American boy is when he's 10, yeah, 10 sense. years old. Yeah. yeah. So like no concept on like what to make out of these images and um, it's porn is never going away. The question is, okay, can, can that just be one, one piece of the pie in terms of, and how do you talk about it as a parent? Because it's, it's, it's funny that you need language. We need language for all of these things, but I, I hope that, um, my hope is, you know, whether, whether you're learning it young and you have some progressive parents, or maybe you're making decisions now and you're kind of bumping up against parts of your, your identity that feel like, you know, they're, they're unexplored or they, they need some revising that you're hopefully you're in conversation with yourself around both the shame narratives and also giving yourself, you said that word, both of you said that word, I I noticed giving yourself permission. Um, to ask the questions so that, so that you're not hamstrung because we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be, um, what's the word limited by other people's notions and assumptions and belief systems that have nothing to do with who we are. Mm, That's so good. The last thing I want to bring up with you is something interesting that we experienced when we first started talking about, um, what our relationship would look like with me exploring my bisexuality and being with women. And something Connor said to me that I repeat often and sticks with me to this day is let yourself feel what you want to feel. Hmm. And I couldn't allow myself to have these feelings or desires because of the shame and because of the fear. And so what I've learned in my experience is that the more I let myself feel what I want, the more free I feel, the more I'm able to explore these desires that I kept hidden away for so long or that felt so wrong to me. And sometimes something will happen and I'm like, okay, that was a little too much for me. Like, let's back up. Like I could feel that in my head, but I just don't need to feel that in reality right now. Um, But I guess my question is, how can we elicit that feeling of allowing ourselves to go there even while experiencing the fear? We see that again. So it's allowing yourself to go there yeah, how, even though. Even when we're experiencing the fear. So allowing ourselves to maybe reach that edge or to try that thing that's new or to feel that feeling while feeling fear, while feeling anxious, but knowing that's something you want to explore? Oh, wow. What a good question. So I want to say incrementally, right? You're going to, and it's about building a window of tolerance. Mm -hmm. Then they use that concept in trauma, which is right. Um, in other words, learning to sort of get, get to that place. Um, and it's, it's very gradual, which is okay. Where, where's that threshold for me? So I, I would say that go slow, um, and the mindfulness work will really help you there, which is that, okay, this is something that I want to explore. This is something that's meaningful for me and I feel anxiety and there's some fear here and both are true. Like they both coexist. It's when you try to shut the fear out or suppress the fear in a, in a sense 
uh, what is it? Brene Brown talks about, you know, uh, shame only can live in secret. Mm. So when, when you're holding space, it's, it's that more expansive bandwidth to say, ah, okay, both are true. How, how can I just observe what's happening for me and connect, connect with the good, connect with what feels right. So it, it takes time. Like it doesn't happen overnight. Even so I know some people do this kind of shock thing or like, okay, like this is who I am now. <laughs> they go for it. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes that doesn't work that well. You know, it's just like going to zero to 60 all at once. Um, but you're so lucky Kelly that you have such a supportive partner in Connor who's, who's willing to walk down this, this road with you, because I think that makes a world of difference than trying to do it by yourself. Yeah. yeah you're super lucky. Kelly. Yeah. Jeez. I'm so lucky. <laughs> Thanks lucky. Shira. <laughs> He's going to be repeating that. Shira said, you're so lucky. Yeah, Why don't lucky you appreciate you it? <laughs> it's true though. And I know not everyone is as fortunate to have someone who is patient and I have meltdowns plenty about this because it does get overwhelming and scary. And to just know that I can turn to him and he'll talk me through it. And he's gotten even better as it, as time has gone on knowing what that conversation needs to be like and feel like for me to feel safe. It all comes back to feeling safe. If I feel yeah. safe and I feel like our connection, our partnership is in a good place, then we're both more able to go and explore and feel free in that. And so Connor has done such an amazing job of showing up and creating safety within himself, within me and our relationship. And I've done the same. And so it just really, I think has created a foundation for us to have to have more fun and be curious. Yeah. And I think, I think having a sense of humor about all of it is kind of a great yes. starting place. Cause that's even the thing, like if to, to kind of circle back to sex education, if you could have that, those kind of conversations with, they're funny. Like, I don't know if you've, mm -hmm. if you've ever seen varsity blues, but when the, the sex ed teacher has everybody say penis, 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 vagina, 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 like it's just, kids are going to laugh at that shit. And we're going to laugh at that stuff too. It's like, mm -hmm. it's totally, I mean, we did a show the other day on like the shapes of dicks and it was, it's yeah. just funny. It's just funny. Like it's, <laughs> we're all weird and kooky and like we all have our kinks and our little things. And it's, if you can look at it and say, okay, this is actually really just at the end of the day, nothing it's pure entertainment. <laughs> it's like the funniest, mm -hmm. it's something that's, it's been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. And, and we find a lot of joy in it. But once you add this constriction and this like seriousness to it, it does, it loses a lot of its ability to like flow and be what it, be what it's supposed to be. And I, I think it's a little bit of a reverence how it goes a long way when it comes to sexuality, in my opinion. No, I, I love that. And, and kind of coming back to what we talked about in the beginning, it's not over identifying with any one feeling state, right? That it's, it's funny humor, whatever, um, jokes, uh, but also maybe places of vulnerability and, and tenderness and fear and anxiety. So, I mean, it's, it's all part of it, isn't it? And so if you can kind of just step back or remind yourself to step back, um, and know that you, you might be experiencing all of these things and sometimes multiple things at the same time that, that it's okay. It's, it's part of what it is to be, to, to, I, I want to say have that, um, that particular field of experience that a lot of people close themselves off to because there's, they have such strong preconceptions about what it's supposed to be or what it's not supposed to be. So same thing with spirituality. It's just wild. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so reclaiming your own relationship to it is, is what matters. And to be able to have a living, breathing partnership that's full of these kinds of conversations that the two of you have, um, Again, you're, you're, you're lucky to have that because a lot of people uh, never get there. They never get there. Thank you. I like that validation. That feels good for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Shira, you you're, so, you're so amazing. We loved having you <laughs> Thank on. You. Thank you so much for sharing and being with us. I'm really glad we got to have this conversation. Yeah, we'll have to do this again sometime. This has been yeah. really fun. I'm sure we could keep, I'm sure we could keep going. Oh, we, we could keep to. going. There's lots of topics. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It was a pleasure being with you both. Thank you. This show is brought to you by Soulfire Productions.